Well, let me encourage you to have your Bible open at the first chapter of 1 John. As we begin a short series through this wonderful letter. One of the issues that the Apostle John is concerned about, one of the issues that the Apostle John has confronted and seen is that it's possible to say that you believe in Jesus but not be a Christian. It's possible to speak of Jesus and not actually be a Christian. It's possible to be a preacher and to use the language of an evangelical, but not be preaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible to sound like a Christian, but not be a Christian. It's possible to embrace the basic ethos of Christianity, yet not be a saved man or woman. The Apostle John has seen these kinds of things. All this was happening when he wrote his letter. It's one of the reasons why he wrote, because he'd seen these kinds of things going on. For example, when we get into chapter 2 at verse 18, we'll read John saying this, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. To be anti-Christ is exactly that. Some actually give the perception of being for Christ when actually they are not. Not the Christ of the Bible. They went out from us. They used to identify with Christians. They used to identify with Christian churches. They used to be part of Christian churches. But they went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. For a while we thought they were. Maybe for quite a while we thought they were. Maybe for a while they thought they were. But they weren't. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. Well, we'll consider that more when we get there in the series. But you can see what John is saying has happened. There were people in churches who were not even Christians. And they became dissatisfied with what it meant to be a true believer in a faithful church. They decided they wanted more than that. They decided they wanted something different to that. So they left those early churches and they established their own ministries. The writings of Paul back this up with his many warnings about the numerous false teachers who were peddling their messages amongst the churches and even amongst Christians. One of the marks of false teaching is a dissatisfaction with that which has long been held as true historic Christianity. 
suddenly that's not enough anymore. That's not good enough anymore. We want more than that. We don't want the same old, same old. We want something new. New ideas, new novelties, new methods, new styles of worship, new excitements, new thrills, new miracles, new messages from God. We want more and new. We don't want to sing the words of Arabella Hankey's hymn. It's a great name, isn't it? Arabella Hankey. She wrote these words. Tell me the old, old story. No, we don't want the old, old story. We reject the old, old. We want the new and the exciting and the thrilling. That is often the mark of false teachers. Does this happen today? You can be certain it does. And when a Christian, of course, takes the Bible's warnings about false teachers seriously, you actually discover that you're often accused, even by other Christians, of being judgmental or of being too fussy about doctrine. But the Bible warns us again and again, Old Testament and New, about false teachers peddling heresies and falsehoods. And it's rampant at the time when John is writing, and it's one of the main reasons why he writes. John is writing to help Christians think and see clearly on these issues. Now, the fact that John is the author of this letter has been agreed by the church as far back as we can go. Now, if you actually read the whole letter right through, the name John doesn't appear anywhere in the letter. He doesn't identify himself as the author in the writing. But all the early church fathers, early church fathers, who were they? Well, that's the term that we use to those church leaders who followed immediately after the apostles and whose lifetimes overlapped those of the apostles so that some of them actually knew men like John. Some of them were taught by him. All the early church fathers acknowledged John as being the author. This John who was the disciple of Jesus. John who is the author of one of the Gospels which bears his name. The author of the revelation that he received from Christ that we're studying on Sunday evenings and with which God concludes the canon of the scriptures. This is the John who writes this epistle. The exact date of it, difficult to pin down. Late on, very late on in the first century, we're fairly certain that John was the last of the apostles and uh, written by most scholars' agreement in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, um, very likely in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. Now, the ground that John is going to cover is quite narrow. You might remember a few years ago we went through 1 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians Paul covers a lot of ground. He tackles lots of dif different issues which is reflected in the fact that 1 Corinthians is about three times the length of 1 John. 
We find in 1 John that he actually only has a few things to say, but he repeats himself in saying them and he approaches them from different angles. I was talking to someone about this during the week, um, another pastor who's preached through it uh, a number of times, and he put it like this. I think it's quite helpful. It's a bit like going up a staircase in a lighthouse. You go round in a circle and you think, hang on, we'll come back to where we started, but you discover you're higher up than you were before. It's a good, good illustration. John is like that, covers lots of ground. We'll keep coming back to the same theme. As one preacher put it, um, there are three main themes uh, in this letter. And these themes are three significant birthmarks that every Christian should have when they're born again. There are three main themes. They are correct doctrine, loving relationships, and true obedience. The main issue in terms of doctrine is correct belief in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why John begins by talking about Christ. And he returns to the theme of Christ three more times as he goes through his letter. Regarding relationships, God, John will explain that a genuine believer who has truly been born again cannot help but have his relationships with others transformed. If your relationship with God has been transformed through Christ, your relationship with others will be transformed. If you've been confronted by and changed by and indwelt by the love of God, then you too will love in a new way. And in terms of obedience, John's main argument is that you cannot claim to be justified if there is no ongoing work of sanctification in your life. In other words, you cannot claim to have been pardoned and forgiven all of your sins if you have not been set free from sin's dominion over you. Those two things always go together. If you've been forgiven and pardoned your sins, you've also in Christ been set free from the dominion of sin in your life. And what are John's goals and aims as he writes this letter? Well, he tells us there are three things that he specifically mentions. The first we've already read, and it's in verse 4 of chapter 1, that your joy may be full. John wants you to have the full joy that every Christian should have. Well, that's a good thing. Jesus himself said in, in verse 11 of John 15... Words that John has recorded for us in his gospel. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. John wants you to have that fullness of joy that Jesus spoke about. He wants you to have the fullness in the joys that are found in being a Christian. Do you want to be a joyful Christian for all the reasons that the Bible gives you for being joyful. Not a joy that comes from man-made, man-centred inventions, 
to which the name of Jesus has been attached to try and make them valid. But that genuine joy, which belongs to all who've truly been united to Christ, John wants you to have the fullness of that joy. That's his purpose in writing. Well, that's an encouragement. Secondly, the first verse of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Not that John is suggesting that in this life and this side of heaven, we will reach a state of sinless perfection. He understands that we won't. But that the mark of a true believer is a pursuit of and a desire for holiness of life. That will mark you out. There was a a great Bible teacher, A.A. Hodge. He said this. You cannot take Christ for justification. That word means God declaring you to be forgiven and pardoned and acceptable now to him. You cannot take Christ for justification unless you take him for sanctification. Now, what does he mean by that word? It's the ongoing work of putting off sins and putting on righteousness. It means growing in holiness and obedience as a Christian. So Hodge says you can't take Christ for justification unless you also take him for sanctification. Think of the sinner, he says, coming to Christ and saying... I do not want to be holy. I do not want to be saved from sin. I would like to be saved in my sins. I want to be justified, but I do not want to be sanctified. Now says Hodge, could he or she be accepted by God? You know the answer. The two go together, you see, that you may not sin. And then John gives a third reason. And we find that in verse 13 of chapter 5. That you may know. You'll you'll see how many times John uses that word know. K-N-O-W. That you may know. That you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He wants you to know and to continue. John wants Christians to have full assurance of how and why we stand in Christ. And who and what we are in Christ. And in this there is joy. Uh, The famous preacher Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones, he made this observation. Assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. And John understands that. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to be free from sin. And in that, he wants you to have assurance. There are some who think they are a Christian. This letter is going to show them that they're not. There are some who are Christians, but they're filled with all kinds of doubts and fears as to whether they really are. 
this letter is designed to calm your fears. And on that basis, someone once said that this letter brings both comfort and affliction. It brings comfort to the afflicted and it brings affliction to the comfortable. And it will. So this letter is about correct doctrine, it's about loving relationships, and it's about true obedience. Some have said, uh, you'll read this a lot, that this letter is about uh, the moral test for the Christian, about the social test for the Christian, and about the, the doctrinal test for the Christian. We could describe this letter as being about truth, love and obedience resulting in joy, holiness and assurance. Well, I don't know how it is for you, but I need this letter. And I trust we'll find great encouragement in it and a great deal of help in us as we study it through. For the remainder of our time this morning, let's consider the opening three verses. Verse 4, we've already seen, is one of the goals that John has in writing. He wants our joy to be full. Well, let's consider the first three verses. And as I've already mentioned, we see that John begins by just focusing on the person of Christ. And there are three very important lessons that we learn or are reminded of. First of all, Jesus Christ is eternal God. Jesus Christ is eternal God. You see, John begins by taking us straight to the heart of the issue, which is the person and work of Christ. You can't really read these verses and not be reminded of how John introduced his gospel. We read in the letter, that which, from, what, that which was from the beginning. And of course, he begins his gospel in the beginning. Shouldn't surprise us that this same man has these common themes. He talks about Jesus being the word of life at the end of verse 1 in 1 John. And of course, in his gospel, he has these words, the word was with God and was God and in him was life. This Jesus is the word of life. And here is the key issue which lies at the root of the Christian faith. That Jesus was, is, and forever will be eternal God. Lies at the heart of everything. That's the starting point. And you see, this is why for many people, they never get past this issue. Because they refuse to accept this one basic truth about Christ. That he is eternal God. They're happy to accept many other things about him. Lots of other things you can say about Jesus, about him being a good teacher, a good example, a good this, a good that. Quite happy to accept those things. We can say that about lots of people. God? Oh, now you've gone too far. But John reminds us of this basic thing, you see. This is at the heart of it all. You see, if you deny that Jesus Christ is from everlasting to everlasting God, if you deny that he is the self-sufficient, self-existent one who has life 
in himself, that he is above and over all things, that he is the maker, creator and sustainer, the things that we've been singing about together this morning. If you deny that he is the one before whom we live, in whom we have life and to whom we must one day stand and give an account for our sins, if you deny all of these truths, then you have no Christianity. Uh, We talk about eternal life. But look what John says in verse 2. The life was manifested, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That eternal life. He's speaking about Christ. And he actually calls Christ eternal life. It's almost like that's a title for him. Jesus is eternal life. That's a great thing, isn't it? You see, eternal life is not a concept. Eternal life is not an idea. Eternal life is not a vague hope. Eternal life is a person. A person. To say you have eternal life, you can only say that if you have Christ. Because he is eternal life, says John. This is why in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5, John will declare that God has given us eternal life. He's given us Christ And this life is in his son. Well, of course it is, because Jesus is eternal life. He who has the son has life. Why? Because Jesus is eternal life. And if you don't have the son, then you don't have life. Wow. Do you have this eternal life? It all depends whether or not you have Christ. Christ is eternal life. And that can only be true of him if he was, if he is, and if he forever will be eternal and almighty God. It's wonderful. Before Jesus was anything else, he was that. Eternal God and eternal life. He always has been. He always will be. If you would have eternal life, then you must have Christ. You must be of Christ. You must be in him and he must be in you. This is the distinguishing feature of the Christian faith and it's the distinguishing feature of the Christian's hope, the person of Christ. He makes all the difference. It all rests upon the one who is eternal God. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God and man. The eternal one, the one who is eternal life, has become both God and man. Verse 2, the life was manifested. We've seen, we bear witness. The first verse, the things we've heard, the things we've seen, the things we've looked upon, the things we've touched him, 
Jesus. It was manifested, this life, to us, appeared to us, came to us. The Christian faith, you see, is rooted in historical fact, as well as historical truth, historical fact. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came into the world as a man. Not just in the appearance of a man, but as a man. In his gospel, what did John say? The word became flesh. Didn't just look like flesh, it was flesh. And in, in his letter, chapter 4, at verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. He is God and man, fully both. Be clear that the Bible teaches that Jesus is both fully man and continues to be fully God. Now John clearly teaches that Jesus is fully God. Uh, if you just have a look at chapter 5 of the letter. Of course, some people argue that nowhere does the Bible state that Jesus is God. What would convince you, you ask them? Well, it would convince me if the Bible said Jesus is God. Okay. Chapter 5, verse 7. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word... If you want to read John's Gospel just to check, that's Christ. And the Holy Spirit. These three are one. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. So who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him, Christ, who is true. And we are in him, Christ, who is true. And his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life. Who is eternal life? Well, we've already seen it in these opening verses. It's Christ. Jesus is both God and man. But John is in no doubt that Jesus is fully man. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. We are eyewitnesses. Him we declare to you. He it is we are making known to you. Not a thing, not a theory, not a philosophy. Him we declare. The person of Christ. The man, Christ Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death for sinners and his resurrection. All the promises and truths concerning the salvation and eternal hope of sinners are all founded upon these things which actually really happened and all in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy as we've seen recently. If Jesus is not the sinless God-man, then he cannot be our all-sufficient 
substitute at Calvary who qualifies to make atonement for our sins. He cannot be that saviour, but John knows he is. He's the eternal one made flesh, the God-man. All other religions, all other belief systems, all they give are thoughts and ideas and opinions and hypothesis. Christianity gives you Christ. God in human flesh. The way, the truth, and the life. And note that John doesn't merely say that Jesus was manifested in a general sense, but that he was manifested to us. It's real and it was personal. He came to us. When I send something in the post, it's intended to go to a very specific address so that it reaches the person I intend to receive it. I can't put a blank envelope in a post box and say to myself, well, it's in the post. It has to be addressed because I want it to go to someone and I want it to get there. I want that letter or parcel to get to them. So I send it to them by addressing it to them. And John says, Jesus came to us, to sinful men and women. God has revealed himself to us, made himself known to us, died on the cross for us, rose again for us. It's personal. He's come to me, says John. And if you're a Christian, he's come to you. You are without excuse on the day that you stand before God in judgment if you find yourself in that position without Christ and without hope. You are without excuse if you find yourself in that position on that day. Why? Because Christ has come to us. God has made himself known to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God has secured salvation for sinners in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And God has preserved everything that we need to know for nearly 2,000 years and counting in this book, the Bible. This morning, with this book open, Jesus has come to us. Jesus has come to you. And there's no getting away from it. And there's no escaping it. And anyone on that day standing before Christ as the judge of all the world, is without excuse. Jesus can say legitimately, I came to you. 
but you rejected me. Is that you? He's come to us. We're without excuse. Pick up your Bible. Read it. Ask God to make himself known to you. And a remarkable thing will happen. Jesus will come to you. John begins his letter with the man who is God. And then finally, Jesus Christ is the source and means of our fellowship. He's the source and means of our fellowship. At the heart of Christian fellowship is the fellowship that each believer has with God through Christ. And central to John's instruction is that to be in fellowship with God must come through Jesus, whom he has seen and is declaring. This fellowship comes through Christ. Apostolic truth regarding the gospel of Christ and the Christian faith lies at the heart of Christian fellowship. And I'm going to tell you something that some of you will find a bit strange. Here it comes. The truth of the faith is even more important than love when it comes to Christian fellowship. That's a surprise to some of you. Let me say it again, and then I'll explain how and why. The truth of the faith is even more important than love when it comes to Christian fellowship. Why? Because this truth is what, the truth that John is speaking about here is what establishes our fellowship in the first place. Without the truth of the gospel, there is no fellowship. Without the truth of the gospel, we can never be brought back into fellowship with God. And if we're not in fellowship with God, we have no fellowship with one another. It's the truth of the gospel that establishes that fellowship in the first place. The gospel truth, if you like, is what qualifies us to be in fellowship Agreement in the truth is what admits us into fellowship. Now, love, of course, has a vital place and role to play. And John is going to have a lot to say about it. It's vital. But whilst love defines how we fellowship, it's not the thing that brings us into fellowship. We first receive that truth concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and by it are brought into fellowship with God and consequent to that we are brought into fellowship with everybody else who's in fellowship with God. Agreement in the truth is the pivotal component of Christian fellowship. That is not to downplay love it is to raise the place of truth for example chapter 2 verse 24 therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning what's he talking about he's talking about the truth of the faith and the truth of the gospel let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he's promised us, eternal life. Continue in the truth that you've heard from the beginning. Christian, Christian fellowship has its starting place in truth. Now, love is important, of course. The very fact that we have this truth at all is because God has loved us. Love has a huge part in all of this. But the truth, that's the thing that establishes it. We find it very easy to injure our fellowship with each other. That usually happens because we've allowed something far less important and much more superficial than the truth to come between us. People talk about the arguments in church members' meetings about the colour of the paint on the walls and all those kinds of things. But actually, it's the truth. It's those superficial things that cause the problems. Something of little, if any, eternal consequence. Something which is of no significance in terms of, of advancing the gospel. The closer your fellowship with the Lord is, and the more you make that the issue that you have with other believers, the closer your fellowship with them will be. Because our fellowship with one another is based upon the fellowship that we have with God. When we make that the focus, then our fellowship draws together. John longs to have a close fellowship with other Christians, but that fellowship only comes through the same saving faith in the same glorious Saviour according to the same truth of the gospel as preached and taught by the apostles. It's that we're in agreement with those things that we have this fellowship together. This is the standard for fellowship between believers. This truth that God has made known. This truth that we declare. This is the standard for our fellowship together. And this must therefore remain the standard by which we as a church have fellowship with other churches. This was the big issue that was remembered just a few months ago that happened 50 years back when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott had a very public disagreement and it was over the issue of truth. Truth. But here's the important point for you to think about this morning. Is this fellowship with God through Christ your personal experience and testimony? Do you know that you are in fellowship with God through Christ? Because that's what John is talking about here. That you may have fellowship with us. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the issue. Do you know what it is to be living in fellowship with God through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see... The letter begins with Christ, and so must you.